welcome to Rethinking Neurodiversity, a podcast looking at the history, triumphs and challenges of divergent thinking. We're your hosts, Fran and I Ling, and together we'll be talking to neurodivergent advocates, experts and those with lived experience to rethink the narrative around neurodiversity. This podcast is brought to you by Noetic Health, the intelligent neurodiversity app for adult ADHD, autism, dyslexia and dyspraxia. In this episode, we speak to Anna McLaughlin, neuroscientist, academic author, and founder of SciTranslate about the evolution of ADHD. Anna talks to us about how ADHD was beneficial back when humans were hunter-gatherers and how our environment has changed to make these strengths seem like weaknesses in modern society, which is known as the evolutionary mismatch theory. We also talk a lot about sleep and ADHD and your circadian rhythm, which describes your internal clock and the physical, mental and behavioural changes that everyone experiences within a 24-hour period. We certainly learn a lot and we hope that everyone else does too. Hi Anna, thanks for joining us. We're excited to have you on this week's episode. Yeah, great to be here. So the topic we're going to be discussing this week is the evolution of ADHD, which I know is something uh, you know a lot about, hence why we've got you on. But we'd love it if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself um, and what first got you introduced in neurodiversity. Yeah, sure. So my name is Dr. Anna McLaughlin and I hold a PhD in neuroscience and psychology from King's College London. I'm also the director of SciTranslate, which is a science communication and research agency that I founded to make science accessible and exciting for everyone. And I first got interested in neurodiversity during my PhD when I was diagnosed with ADHD, uh, which came as quite a surprise because it was um, right at the end before I was about to submit my thesis. And this really transformed my perception of myself and led to me to do a lot of I guess, research and try and understand neurodiversity more because it reframed so much of my identity and experiences. And I became really passionate about wanting other people um, to become more aware of and understand neurodiversity and understand how their own brains work. And that is why I'm also now working with Noetic as the neuroscience advisor, which has been a great journey so far. Oh, it's been so great to have you. You've been such a wonderful part of the team. Um, in case you haven't already said, when did you get diagnosed? Uh, so it was at the end of 2020. Um, so it's been about two and a half years now, coming up to three years. Because I think we got diagnosed around the same time, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. It was very close to each other. I seem to remember we were both on that journey of processing things at the same time. Because it takes a while to sift through the emotions that surface post-diagnosis. It's it's not an overnight thing or like an end state. In many ways, a diagnosis is kind of the beginning of an almost a new paradigm, I suppose. Um, and having someone who's also adjusting or at a similar stage of the journey can make wading through these what can be quite dichotomous feelings um, of deep validation, but also grief and sadness in some ways feel less isolating and from what I can remember, it was actually really comforting having someone who uh, was going through something similar. Yeah, absolutely, because we're quite different in a lot of ways, but we also had similar experiences and there's, there's definitely been like a lot of ups and downs with figuring out how ADHD applies to my life and how it affects my family and relationships and work and how to navigate things. So, yeah, it's always really helpful having someone else who's experiencing something similar. 
And it's true that even though we both got diagnosed with ADHD, how it presents in our day-to-day lives um, can be very different experiences, but we still resonate with each other's processing period. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So hopefully this chat is also helpful for anyone else who's either thinking of getting diagnosed or who has been diagnosed or maybe they just recognise some ADHD traits in themselves or people close to them. Mm. What would you say are the most significant ways that your life has been positively impacted Um, and maybe outline some of the challenging sides as well? Uh, In terms of positive impact, definitely understanding myself better because as we know, ADHD is a condition of extremes. You're either all or nothing. You know, you're either extremely interested or not interested at all. You're either very awake or you're completely exhausted, often at the wrong times. Um, Either you're full of energy and jumping around or you can't be bothered doing anything. And I always found it quite hard to navigate these extremes because they were very unpredictable. And it can also make you seem like a very inconsistent um, or hypocritical person because one day you can do something you know, quite complex or difficult and focus and then the next day you can't do something very basic. And being able to understand why I'm able to do certain things and not others or why environments affect me in certain ways has been really helpful for yeah, just knowing my strengths and weaknesses and being able to communicate that to other people and put up boundaries around what I can and can't do in my work, in my relationships. And yeah, it's made things a lot easier overall. But I think that was one of the biggest challenges of figuring that out and then figuring out how to communicate it to people. Definitely, because pre-diagnosis, you're kind of constantly internalizing why energy levels are fluctuating or I remember feeling so so confused as to why I could only get certain things done on certain days um, or why certain things were incredibly distressing or overwhelming and sometimes you can't even pinpoint why it is that you're so stressed and so when you don't have that framework of understanding that's easier to get after diagnosis because most people won't necessarily go deep on what ADHD really means until you or maybe someone you know has it. And so until that inflection point in acceptance and understanding, it's difficult to have self-compassion on a day-to-day. And one of the biggest things I noticed was having so much more patience for the things that I struggle with. um, And that's had such a positive impact on confidence as well as my ability to articulate it to others without feeling like there's something wrong. Yeah, absolutely, because you can move past a lot of the blame and guilt that you have and wondering why you're different from other people and understanding that and then having compassion for yourself and that you did actually manage to get through all these difficult experiences or that you still managed to succeed despite having ADHD or differences from other people. So I think it's a really important part. You know, sometimes just knowing that you have ADHD can be therapeutic in itself. Also, when you meet other people and they say they have ADHD, it's it's very cathartic to be able to be like, so do I. And it almost instantly establishes a deeper connection with them that takes away most of the need to sort of explain yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's interesting, you know, comparing what strengths you have compared with other people with ADHD and what you struggle with. And then also people who don't have it, what kind of different strengths and weaknesses you have. and 
how they can be complemented if you all work together. And it's kind of related to what I wanted to talk to uh, talk about today, um, the evolution of ADHD and how a lot of these traits were actually advantages in hunter-gatherer populations and how people use them in small tribes to yeah, work together better and how the strengths of someone with ADHD might have helped the survival of the whole group and how that translates to modern environments. Yeah, we're super interested to hear about it because ADHD is considered a disability in the UK, but if we're looking back at our history and our past, um, those traits were particularly beneficial. So we'd love to hear more from you about how they might have been beneficial or the evolution as a whole. If you could give us kind of summary and then we can dive into those, those points. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start off talking about um, what the hunter-gatherer tribes were like. Um, so we're basically talking about the Paleolithic era, which is the Stone Age, and that's around 2.6 million years ago. And this is when um, humans were mostly hunter-gatherers. So they were looking for wild plants, um, animals, and things like that for sustenance. And it was only around 10,000 years ago that humans um, made the transition to agriculture, which is what we call civilization, because they were farming and cultivating crops. I would just say that's a bit of a generalization, and it's mostly based off a very Western view of human history, because there is evidence in Australia, for example, that the indigenous tribes were farming um, up to about 50 or 60,000 years ago. So this is a very broad generalization across humanity because there hasn't been as much research in indigenous tribes, there are some differences that aren't accounted for in a lot of the studies um, looking at the evolution of ADHD. So that was just something that I wanted to mention. But essentially the shift to you know, the agriculture and our modern society and how we've changed things quite a lot has happened in a very small part of um, human development. If we consider that's only the last 10,000 years and uh, we still have about 99% of the DNA that hunter-gatherers did. So not much has changed in that respect, but obviously our environments have changed massively since then. You know, our brains have developed according to those environments, but they haven't developed according to the modern world. And it's actually quite interesting because there's been a lot of genetic studies looking at how the prevalence of ADHD seem to actually be higher in our ancestors and they did that by looking at DNA from Homo sapiens and Neanderthals and looking at how it changed over time, the prevalence with human movement and it seems that ADHD was actually quite an adaptive trait in some circumstances and it's really interesting thinking about how ADHD could have been adaptive before civilization in that environment because it's an explanation of you know kind of pertaining to the fact that ADHD ADHD isn't necessarily a disability or a disorder, but it depends on the environment to how beneficial or disadvantageous it is. And what these studies found that were really interesting is that ADHD could have been a survival advantage for our ancestors. So some of the traits uh, you know, that are similar to ADHD are being hyper aware of the environment, which today could translate into being hyperactive and easily distracted. You know, people being very vigilant and scanning for potential risks and being very attuned to small changes to their environment back then could have been a huge survival advantage because they're constantly aware of any perils. 
but then today it might translate to people being quite inattentive and easily distracted by irrelevant things and because there aren't that many perils in our environment now you know no one's really attacking us or chasing us down to eat us as often people you know with ADHD have far lower dopamine levels so they really thrive on stress and that creates an ability to hyperfocus. but in the absence of any stress then you know we can experience a lot of stress from small things in our environment instead that are constantly triggering us triggering us to a chronic or low level straight state of stress rather than those extreme bursts of adrenaline from those situations being highly curious and exploratory uh, is also really beneficial for you know adapting to the environment and exploring new areas but today again in the absence of those very like stressful or high adrenaline situations it might lead people with ADHD to be novelty seeking they have a more of a propensity to addiction because they're not getting enough stimulation from their environments and while you know quick decision making under pressure is again very beneficial in those situations uh, in the absence of st stimulation it can lead to a lot of impatience and impulsive decision making uh, which is maybe not so beneficial when we have to make very strategic decisions involving lots of different sources of information so i mean overall something that people talk a lot about in ADHD is emotional regulation and how that can be quite dysregulated and it's been difficult to understand the reason for that but again that's also very much an evolutionary adaptation because humans have always depended on survival as part of belonging to a social group or tribe and in a lot of conditions not just ADHD we can see that that can lead to becoming hypersensitive to any rejection or social exclusion and ADHD is no different because a lot of people do tend to experience an intense sensitivity to rejection um, which is sometimes known as rejection sensitivity dysphoria and that is because the kind of reward system or brain has become so attuned to positive social feedback and interactions that any negative feedback they've become it becomes hypersensitive so they can react extremely strongly to that but that's because their survival depended on it and these kind of genetic differences you know they're really helpful for survival then but because our environments change they're not so helpful anymore and it's particularly damaging if we don't know that these traits exist i mean everything you've said really makes sense because humans have evolved and throughout evolution these must have been strengths of people at some point like if these weren't strengths then that's not really how survival of the fittest works like you needed that variety within people within your tribe within your community and we still do need that variety within our community so it's bizarre now that it's now a disorder when realistically it's just a a variance in how our brains work which like has so many strengths like you said mm, mm, definitely it's um actually known as evolutionary um, mismatch theory so basically this concept that um because our brains haven't evolved at the same pace of our environment we have this mismatch between our genetics and our environment and even very small sort of differences um between people with adhd and without adhd can be explained in that context so for example a lot of people with ADHD have delayed onset circadian rhythms where they tend to stay up later fall asleep later and wake up later 
than other people. And yeah, I know <laughs> I think that's something that you say that you have and I massively have it as well. Forever trying to become a morning person and it's just never working and I can just never get to sleep before midnight. Mm, but a lot of that is to do with such as um, sensitivity to blue light. So um, people with ADHD are extremely sensitive to like light and blue light at night. Um, most people either fall into the category of um, early risers, um, which is two chronotypes. One is known as morning larks that are the early risers or um, the night owls, but people with ADHD tend to have more of an exaggeration um, even beyond the kind of standard night owls. And that is very much due to, um, they have differences in cortisol, which is a stress hormone, melatonin, sensitivity to blue light. And there's this theory, um, I don't think this has been studied scientifically, but that AD, people with ADHD would have been the night watchmen in tribes because they can stay up at late at night and be really alert and awake um, compared with the morning. And if you think about hunter-gatherers, that's actually something that's really helpful to have some people that are more alert in the morning and some people that are more alert at night. Interesting, because I definitely feel, I noticed that when I sleep in a space alone, I'm so much more hypersensitive and even tiny. And usually I sleep, if I'm sleeping next to someone, I sleep like a baby. And when I'm alone, I'm so, I'm so sensitive to even the tiniest of noises. And that could be a, that could be a hypervigilance thing. Could be a, maybe my ancestors were watchmen, watchwomen, <laughs> but interesting. Yeah, the sensitivity to blue light thing as well. And that ties in with the, is it dopamine seeking, where it's difficult for me to put my phone down at night because I'm always thinking of something that I need to pick up my phone for. Like, oh, I need to take a look at this or like research this because this has popped into my head at midnight and I need to find out the answer to this by Googling it. And so therefore, and then that sends me down a rabbit hole. And so it becomes very difficult to then run out of reasons to use my phone, to then put my phone down and then rest my eyes. <laughs> And then obviously at that point, you've used your phone for so long that it just becomes hopeless to try and sleep. Is there any advice, if any listeners resonate with struggling to go to sleep at a time that they would like to? One thing that I can think of is melatonin does help because that's a natural supplement that we can take that is essentially just the sleep hormone. So melatonin is really um, helpful, but it's actually quite difficult to get in the UK because doctors class it as an addictive uh, sleep drug, which I personally disagree with because it is a natural hormone. I think there is potential for abuse with melatonin, but the risk is quite low. So it can be difficult to get in the UK, but fortunately there's lots of other ways that you can increase your melatonin naturally at night. For people with ADHD, obviously things like uh, having good sleep hygiene and not using your phone um, just through sheer willpower alone um, can be very difficult. Uh, one of the best things that people can do is get blue light blocking up glasses and use those like late afternoon and when the sun goes down. And that's one of the most, I think, clinically researched methods to help with um, delayed onset circadian rhythms. And it's been really helpful for a lot of people with ADHD because essentially these glasses that you wear block the blue light coming from your screen. So then it helps the melatonin to increase naturally at nighttime. Other things that are really helpful is um, going out in daylight as soon as you wake up in the morning. So it doesn't have to be sunny. 
but trying to get outside within that first hour of waking up for a little while um, because the sunlight, once it goes into your retina, it helps to reset um, your circadian rhythm. And so things like not wearing sunglasses first thing in the morning can also help because that actually also helps to reset your circadian rhythm too. Exercise is an amazing way to regulate not only melatonin and cortisol, but also lots of other hormones and dopamine, um, endorphins. So exercise is one of yeah, the best uh, non-medical uh, treatments for ADHD. So particularly if you compare um, exercise with getting out in the daylight in the morning and yeah, trying to have a regular wake up time every day, then you might find that your um, when you go to bed at night becomes more and more regular as well and earlier. But I think putting on the focus on what you can do easily to help your circadian rhythm regulate rather than trying to just use sheer willpower not to do things that you really enjoy late at night because that can sometimes be a recipe for disaster if you're just battling your stimulation-starved brain at night and wanting to go on your phone. You know, we have to be realistic about <laughs> what we're working with. Yeah, there's some really good tips. Your sleep hygiene in the morning is just as important as your sleep hygiene when you go to bed. Um, that sets you up for the next day and that determining your length of the next day. If you like set your alarm for when you need to be up rather than set your alarm for an hour earlier than you need to be up, you're much more likely to get out of bed more quickly, et cetera, et cetera, and be ready to start your day um, rather than having that snoozing in, uh, which I'm very inclined to. Mm, like putting your alarm on the other side of the room so you actually have to get up to do it. Um, yeah, they even make special ADHD alarm clocks, which are really loud alarms that you have to like solve a puzzle to turn off. So you have to kind of wake up to do it. Uh, <laughs> Personally, I find stressful alarms way too stressful. It doesn't actually set me up well for the morning. But with the Sleep Cycle app, it sort of it tracks your sleep cycles and wakes you up when you're in a not in deep sleep state which can be really helpful. But something you reminded me, Fran, when you said that last thing, I remember reading that someone said you should think of sleep as the first thing that you do um, rather than the last thing that we do because sleep comes before the day that we have. And so, and the, and the quality of sleep that we have before the day that we have determines the quality of the day we have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like you have a good breakfast to start your day. So <laughs> before that, you should be having a good sleep to start your day right. And actually, funnily enough, um, meal timing is also related to your circadian rhythm. So trying to have your meals at regular times also helps to set your body clock. So then it knows, you know, what time do we start making stomach acids so we can digest our food better? Uh, what time do we start producing melatonin after we've had our last meal at night and things like that? So, yeah, regular meal timings can be helpful, too. But it's funny because a lot of people really find, um, especially with ADHD, when they're in like going camping or um, when they're outside a lot they get exhausted at night time and they'll fall asleep really easily so it's very much you know having those modern sedentary lifestyles with a lot of artificial light that shifts that and it's a really good example of how the environment can create a mismatch and you know exaggerate things so that it becomes dysfunctional rather than just being a slight difference from other people yeah, I feel like being in nature really helps me get more in touch with my natural body rhythms, like my circadian rhythm. And when I do wake up in the morning, I feel so much more refreshed. 
than when I wake up having been at home on my laptop all day and on my phone late at night. And for years we've been told about blue light and using your screen at night affects your sleep. And I feel like I'm just in denial because I'm so used to being in that habit. It's really difficult to get yourself out of that habit. But I'm going to use today's chat to try and kickstart it. And I think that we all deserve a good night's sleep and an, and an energised day tomorrow. <laughs> all thanks to your brilliant insights, Anna. So if someone wants to follow you or follow your work, uh, where can they find you? So people can find out more about my work or get in touch with me via LinkedIn um, or through my company website, which is sci-translate.com. And both the links um, for those will be in the podcast description. On my company website, we talk a lot about the independent research that we're doing, either in neurodiversity or mental health or well-being. We also have blogs about psychology, neuroscience, relationships, AI, technology, healthcare, and anyone that's interested in contributing to blogs um, or wants to send us their pitches, we're always really happy to hear about those. And just in general, if anyone wants to get in touch with me um, to talk about neurodiversity or science or having a career in science, I'm always really happy to have a chat and yeah, don't hesitate to reach out. Yeah, we recommend everyone reach out for Anna. She's always um great person to chat to so thanks so much for being on the podcast we've really enjoyed chatting with you thanks Fran and Eiling it was really great chatting with you too and I hope everyone enjoys the show we hope you enjoyed this episode of rethinking neurodiversity we're always open to your thoughts and feedback so please feel free to email hello at noetic.health or get in touch through our social media please follow rate like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast See you next time.